This series in December, we're just going to focus on all things Advent, and I'm going to preach some stuff that God just put on my heart to share uh, during the Advent season until we get into the new year. But um, for these next kind of few messages leading through uh, as we talk about the churches in Revelation, um, this is really my attempt to bring some strong biblical literacy to our church right now. Y'all with me? And uh, my, the reason that we're kind of doing some deep dive stuff here and getting a little bit more t- detail, these are less like preachy messages and there's some teaching involved, is because I want us to understand what the Bible's communicating to us in Revelation, especially through these churches, that they're real churches, real places. And there's some very, uh, very significant things that we can learn from them. Does that sound good? And so today we're going to actually take a little bit of an anthropological journey today. We're going to look at some pictures on the screen. We're going to see uh, a very real place, and then we'll get practical at the end with it. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to all just sit up and lean forward in your seats, bust out your notebooks. If you didn't bring a notebook, steal your neighbor's notebook. It's fine. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to get into some really great content today, but I also think some extremely challenging content today. And uh, so I'm excited to, to share with you today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through to 17 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And remember, this is John writing, uh, being given words from Jesus, and he says this, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. <laughs> right, can we just stop right there for a second? How many of you are like, oh, it's about to get strong? It's like, I know where you live. I, I, know, your, I know your neighborhood. I, I know your location. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I mean, that's tough right there. Not one person in here went for, like, looking for a home in a neighborhood. You're like, hey, real estate agent, can you find me the location of Satan's throne? That's where, that's where I want to live right now, where Satan's throne is. Yet you're holding to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. There's that faithful statement. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, I'll, I'll come to them with my word. Come on, is anybody thankful that God's word come on, yeah. is our weapon? Yeah. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with a, with a strong word. And then he says this, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. We're going to talk about this today. And I will also give them a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So it's in this, this collection of... Of verses that we get some we get some pictures that don't necessarily make sense sometimes like hidden manna white stones Satan's throne where Satan lives it's wild and out in, the, in this moment as we talk about the Pergamum church and so we're going to continue on with this idea a risen savior and the report card of a church and we're talking about Pergamum today another church that we need to take a look at to see what we can glean and learn uh, from this particular church we pair with me just one more time today father we thank you for your word We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so, God, everything in your word is applicable to us. 
Everything in your word is designed to shape us and to form us and to build us and to correct us and to challenge us. So I pray that you would do that today and through the teaching of your word. We love you. We come with faith today to your word. God, we didn't come here for anything else but to hear from you. So move me out of the way. And I pray that all of us collectively in this first service today would hear you and what it is that you have to say to us. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Yeah. Everybody shouted. Yeah. Amen. Is there cereal fans in here? Cereal fans in here. Come on. Sh hands up. See, where are my cereal fans? Let's, let's be honest. Come on, put them up big and high. I see. Yeah, big and high. Do not, you should not be ashamed of this. Cereal is single-handedly a combined food group, okay? It has, it has everything you need for survival in life. Okay, I'm going to shout out some cereals. Captain Crunch, where are my Captain Crunch people? All right. Uh, is there Fruity Pebbles fans in here? Hey. Man. I can't do Fruity Pebbles. They, how many of you agree with Fruity Pebbles? Fruity Pebbles are just like classed up Rice Krispies, okay? They get mushy, it's wrong, it's, it's on, on any levels. All right, Captain, um, uh, I was almost said Fruit of the Loom. It's not Fruit of the Loom, it's um, <laughs> Fruit Looms, Fruit Looms. Yeah, a, a few of you. Cinnamon Toast Crunch people, where are you at? Grape nuts. Okay, uh, grape nuts, no grape nuts people. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was last week. That was like, Golden Grams, where are my Golden Grams? Golden Grams people. Do any of you remember Smacks? The generation don't know. They don't know. Um, cereal's an important thing for me. Um, I don't eat it as often anymore, mainly because I don't like milk that much. Um, but cereal in of itself, I, I, love, I love cereal. But here's my beef with cereal. There is a vast difference between the cereal that is from the proper company, that's on the top shelves, and listen, no shame and no judgment, but the bag's on the bottom shelves. <laughs> How many of you know what I'm talking about? There's false witnesses down there. False teachers. False, teachers. false prophets on the bottom shelf with the bagged cereal. I can't do it. Well, I used to do it when I was a kid, but how many of you would agree with me? There is a massive difference between like Kellogg's and then what's on the bottom. Now, have you ever been in the cereal aisle and you're shopping for your cereal, you're ready to get like Cinnamon Toast Crunch and all the boxes are gone? Yeah. And how many of you know there's that dilemma, that moral dilemma in you in that moment as to whether I'm going to skip Cinnamon Toast Crunch as a whole or I'm going to get the bagged cereal? <laughs> how many of you have been there before? And have you ever did like that bag cereal? That bag cereal is interesting because you walk out with a box, but with the bag cereal, you've got to throw it over your shoulder. It's that big. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? And uh, so I remember, I remember getting back cereal one day and I went home and, and I'm eating this and I'm, and I'm realizing to myself, this cereal is horrible. It is, it's not the real thing. Yeah. It's not what it's supposed to be. It doesn't, it doesn't taste the same. It's like with Oreos. Yeah. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There is no other, there's no other thing but Oreos. Right. You can get the little penguin ones, false prophets. <laughs> Once again, everything's a false prophet. That's what happens when you're in Revelation. Hey, here's, here's my issue. How many of you have experienced that dissonance that takes place when you compromise on what it is that you really want? And you're forced to compromise. You're like, no, no, I wanted, I wanted the real Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I didn't want the bag Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And that's really what I want to deal with today is the issue. <laughs> There's nothing theological about cereal. I want to deal with the issue of compromise today. Yeah, 
See, compromise is tricky because it can be both positive. There's compromises that take place in marriage and relationships working to find middle ground. But it also can be negative in nature. But compromise in the name of capitulation is always dangerous, especially where matters of faith and following Jesus are concerned. And this was the issue that Jesus had taken up with the church at Pergamum. They had compromised who they were through capitulation to the culture around them in order to receive a societal hall pass and economic certainty. Y'all, it's getting quiet in church today. And so let's talk about Satan's throne, <laughs> the city of Pergamum. I'm going to throw up some pictures so that we kind of get a reference point as to where things are at. These are the seven churches, if we have that. Uh, these, these are the seven churches that we're talking about, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So this is, and, and John's down here, you can't see it behind the TV, but John is hanging out right over here on the island Patmos. This is where he's writing from. Which is really interesting because it's almost like with Ephesus, John almost had like a visual of the church that he was writing to. He knew this route. He knew where these churches were. These churches were close in proximity to the point where they understood. So this letter, Revelation, is circulating and going to all of these churches. That's why we're talking about them. So they all know what's going on in the unique situation of the church. Pergamum is a, is a city in the region of Mysia in Western Asia Minor. The modern village of Bergama, Turkey now covers part of this ancient site. And that's from HarperCollins Bible Dictionary. In the time of the New Testament, Pergamum would have been one of the most beautiful Greek cities as it was rich in culture, advanced in buildings, and its societal structure and stature, large in part to its social guilds and politics. This would also be advanced by their ongoing competition with Ephesus. This is a wild competition. So, uh, so Pergamum and Ephesus were battling out as to who was the best city at worshiping the emperor. Y'all with me? Not even a foreign god, the, the emperor. So we, there's this understanding that's called a cult emperor worship. And so Ephesus and Pergamum were battling it out as to who was the best, who could give the greatest worship, who could build the biggest building and the best building in order to worship the emperor. And so they would go back and forth. Ephesus would worship Domitian. Pergamum built temples to worship Augustus and the goddess Roma. Pergamum would eventually be awarded the designation Temple Warden as they would outdo Ephesus and all others in their worship under the emperor. I'm going to show you some pictures just so that we can kind of, I want us to be able to taste and smell and feel this place. I want you to see how ridiculous it got. This is, this is some of the archaeology that has been found at, as to where some of this idol worship and emperor worship was taking place. These are real sites in Pergamum. Stop right here. I want you guys to see this. This is a hill. Look at this amphitheater right here. This hill sits about a thousand feet or so above the city of Pergamum where these faith-filled believers were doing life. And so they would wake up every day worshiping Jesus, but seeing that the city was built to worship something else. Could you imagine that? And this is really important for us to understand. This context is really important for us to understand because this is why Jesus would say to John, I want you to tell the church at Pergamum, I know where you live. I get the pressure. I get what it is that you're facing. I understand that the backdrop of your city is built to literally worship every God except for me. So they understood this. Uh, maybe a few more pictures so you can kind of see the, the landscape. This is crazy right here. Um, 
You might be able to see it right here. Oh, I got the TV. You <laughs> good, thanks guys. Um, these trees over here, on the backside of this, there is a temple to Zeus that was built there for them to worship. So you had multiple gods, then you had this big massive amphitheater, and then central to all of it, you have, well, the, the things built to worship the emperor. Do we have any more? Yeah, yeah there, is there one more? Yeah, so we've kind of flashed, so you guys keep these up for just a second. So Pergamum was the center of emperor cult worship. It would be the presiding cultural value, and it was to take place, it was to take precedent over everyone's life. So here, here's the interesting thing about this emperor worship, though, is that the populace would have been allowed to worship whoever they wanted to, as long as the emperor was placed higher in their worship stratosphere. And this would have been infirmed, affirmed by going to the temple and placing incense on the altar of the emperor. Now I want you to get this, this is really important. This is what the culture was saying. This is what their, their society was saying in this moment. This is what their city was saying. It's like, hey, I don't care who you worship. As long as you go to the temple, you go to the altar, you take a pinch of incense and you burn it on behalf of the emperor, signifying that his worship from you is higher than anything else you worship. And this is why Jesus would say to Pergamon, I know where you live. I understand what's going on. I get the pressure that is on you. And this is important because we must realize that while Revelation was not written to us, it was written for us. Y'all with me? So it's to a very literal church. See, the church at Pergamon had a unique and challenging context that it was existing in. One which Jesus himself would designate as Satan's throne. Could you imagine Jesus saying that? Hey guys, just a heads up. Like I understand your city is where Satan lives. That's intense, right? It's probably not like top 10 in cities to move to. So the church at Pergamum was pressed on all sides. Their faith in Jesus caused them to be excluded from cultural assimilation. It caused them to be pressed politically. And because of this, they would, they would have been seen as social outcasts. And due to this, they would face extreme economic pressure as they would be excluded from businesses and the guilds. And Jesus commends them for being strong, even as they've watched Antipas, one of theirs, be have his life taken for his faithful adherence to Jesus. Jesus. Some of us think we're being persecuted because the barista got our drink wrong. Come on, how many, how many of us have been there before? I mean, this Christian's life is so hard. Antipas would disagree. Yet it would be this ongoing pressure that would cause them to engage in what they were being challenged by Jesus on, and that was compromise. Come on, someone shout compromise. Come on, every shout compromise. Every shout, bag on the bottom shelf. A.W. <laughs> Tozer said it like this. We are sent to bless the world, but we are never told to compromise with it. Ah, that needs a better, this is A.W. Tozer. Come on, that needs a better amen. We were sent into this world, we were sent to bless the world, but we were never told to compromise. And it'd be this, this, mode of thinking, he would continue on to say this, we who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big businesses, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Come on. Come on. 
Come on, is anybody in church today? And this is important for us to understand. This is A.W. Tozer. Don't shoot the messenger, just letting you know. What a powerful statement. See, the truth is, is that compromise tends to happen when we are facing pressure. Why? Because compromise, write this down if you're taking notes today, compromise is the quickest path to pressure relief. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus is the perfect, is the perfect, he's the perfect sacrifice. Why? Because he lived sinless. He didn't, he didn't capitulate to compromise. He didn't break. He didn't sin. That is, that is the greatest tension one can hold in their life is to be perfect. But how many of you agree with me? Compromise usually breaks the tension. Compromise is what takes the pressure. If, if I, like, man, I'm feeling some heat right now. I'm feeling some pressure. If I just give in a little bit, then the pressure will be relieved. All right? It's the quickest way, or so we think. Pressure is what the church at Pergamum was facing, and it's something that we will face if we are not facing it already. But there's another aspect to compromise that's really important for us to recognize and assess in our lives as well. So we've got pressure, but then there's another reason that we have a tendency to compromise. And I just want to get into your business today. I want to be your pastor today. And in his essay titled The Inner Ring, C.S. Lewis would discuss a driving force that really exists in all of us and creates a draw towards a compromise, which is the desire to simply be liked and accepted. Lewis would write concerning our desire to be a, an inner ring that all of us want to be a part of. And then he says this, and you'll be drawn in if you are drawn in, not by a desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment when the cup was so near to your lips, you cannot bear, bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see that other man's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous, to know that you had been tried for the inner ring and rejected. He goes on to say that we will eventually end in a crash, a scandal, and penial servitude. It may end in millions, a peerage, and giving prizes at your old school, but you will be a scoundrel. This is what C.S. Lewis says about compromise for acceptance. Acceptance. We don't just desire it, but we all crave it at one level or another. Don't worry, we'll get to the good news on the back end of this message. Y'all with me still, okay? Pergamum found themselves in the crosshairs of a culture and society that was rapidly changing and progressing. And their faith in Jesus and his work on the cross was not a fit with the cultural norm of the day. How many of you agree with me? Not much has changed. Not only has not much changed, but we are now living in a cultural moment where we are becoming not just postmodern, but we are becoming post-God. And what I mean by this is that sociologically speaking, our culture has drifted from a framework of the sacred order to one that is now identified as expressive individualism. I am my own God. And this mode of thinking wholeheartedly rejects the claims that Jesus makes on one's life. But not only that, the culture has become increasingly combative towards that, those that hold a historically orthodox Christian ethic and belief system. It's this reality that has thrust all of us, no matter where you are at and what you believe, into the ever demoralizing and increasingly hostile arena of our modern day culture wars. For those that would identify as followers of Jesus, this has become extremely complex for us. 
See, it's a, it's a tricky space for us to navigate when it comes to participating in what we would know biblically as the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. Can we all agree that most Christians, and I'm assuming those of you who call yourselves Christ followers here, we want to love people. That was kind of weak. Let's try this again. Am I sure in saying that all of us as Christ followers want to love people? Okay. So when you're in an atmosphere of antagonizing culture wars, it gets a lot more difficult, does it? You have people speaking for you that you don't want speaking for you, right? You see people that, that get put on screens and, and have bigger social media presences and they say something, you're like, no, 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 that's not what I think. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That's why church is important, so that we can find a community faith that stays locked in theologically and locked in doctrinally, so that we've got a place that we can actually find refuge and say, okay, I'm going to breathe in, I'm going to get encouraged, and then I'm going to get back out in the world and love people the way I'm supposed to love them. Yeah. Right? And so what makes it even more complex for believers is the injunction to love others, refrain from judgment, some of these things we heard, we'll talk about this, and generally be a person that impacts people in a positive way. So what has happened is that in the name of reaching people, capitulation has taken place, which has led to compromise. I want to say this, compromise in the name of evangelism never leads to conversion. It always leads to confusion. Compromise, these guys are telling me to say it again, this side, this side doesn't want to hear it. It's just the right here, okay? Compromise in the name of evangelism never leads to conversion. It always leads to confusion. But that's what we're seeing happen. When I was a kid, I hated carrots. Even more so cooked carrots. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Steamed carrots. My grandma, my mom's here. She's going to get some of my therapy issues now. So... You remember grandma, she'd make those, she'd make those, um, those uh, steamed carrots, right? And they would come out of the oven and I just, I knew it was coming, and it was coming. And I had, to eat my, I had to eat my vegetables, so this is what my grandma and my mom would do. I love you, mom, and I love food because of this, but we, they'd, they'd try to put some sugar on it. Brown sugar, exactly. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. Brown sugar on my mushy steamed carrots. I know carrots are good for me. I know that I'm supposed to have them. But the interesting thing is, putting brown sugar didn't do anything for them. And funny enough, it made me reject them even more. And the concern that I have and the concern that Jesus has with the church is that for the better part of 20 years, we've been trying to put brown sugar on the gospel. And what's interesting about the current compromising that we're seeing is that it looks a lot like what Jesus took issue with concerning the church in Pergamum. Compromise in the name of evangelism doesn't do anything for anybody. Come on. Revelation chapter 2, 14 to 15. But I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
and taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. So now he's going to introduce us to two characters that, if you haven't done much Bible study, they're, they're, they're buried in some Old Testament stuff, and we need to go down the journey of figuring this out, extrapolating all these things before we can get to the practical aspect. That's why you've got to lean in today. But it's not just Revelation 2, 14 to 15. I want you to see something. This is really interesting. Can we do some Bible study today? Okay. This was not the only time that this issue and these two characters were mentioned. Let's go back to 2 Peter, the letter we've been in, the letters we've been in all year round. 2 Peter 2, 15 to 16. Watch this. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam the son of Basor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's in the Old Testament. We're not going to read that today. And then look at Jude 1, 10 through 11. So multiple letters is going to highlight these issues. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Who is Balaam? <laughs> How many of you know if a, if a, if a dude, is, if somebody's talked about multiple times, we should probably discover who they are. Yeah. So let's, let's go down the path a little bit more. I feel like we're like in a moment of inception. We're going like two layers deep now, three layers deep now. Numbers chapter 22 to 25 tell the story of Balaam and Balak, king of Moab. Balak sees the approaching Israelites, and the Bible tells us that he was terrified because of the sheer number of people that he was seeing. Balak enlists the help of Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the Israelites in the hopes that upon them being cursed, his army would be able to destroy them. Balak's army would be able to prevail. Balak would pay Balaam for his divination, and Balaam would tell Balak that he would only then say what the Lord God would tell him to say. God would tell Balaam not, Balaam not to curse Israel because they are blessed. Balak would find out, he would up his ante, he would give more money, he would say, oh, come on, you can do this. Three times this would take place. And Balaam would go out, and instead of cursing them, he would bless them. Balaam would go out, instead of cursing them, he would bless them. Balaam would go out, instead of cursing them, he would bless them. And finally, Balak is like, what are you doing? I told you to curse them. I need you to deal with these people so I can prevail against them. And out of frustration, he sends Balaam away. Now, you would think that that's the end of the story, but it's not. And this is why Balaam is mentioned to us numerous times here in the New Testament. So we go to Numbers 25, 1 through 3. It, it tells us this. This is while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the woman of Moab. That, Moab, that was Balak's people. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshiped to their gods. So Israel, listen to this, so Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. How did, th how did this happen? These are, these are the questions that we have to ask when we, read, when we study the Bible. Okay, how did, how did this happen? How did we go from... Balaam is pronouncing three successive blessings over the children of Israel. Balak is irritated, sends him away. And then in just moments later, we read that the children of Israel are prostituting themselves with Moab and they are worshiping foreign gods. Numbers 31, 16 tells us how this happened. They are the ones who at Balaam's advice 
incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident so that the plague came against the Lord's community. In other words, it would be Balaam that would tell Balak how to cause the children of Israel to compromise. Balaam didn't pronounce a curse. He taught Balak how to make them compromise. Here's the thing. The enemy can't curse you. But he can make you compromise. Come on, say it one more time. The enemy can't curse you, but he can make us compromise. The enemy's been defeated. He, he is under our feet, right? The, the Lord has, has won this already by his death, burial, and resurrection. So the, the enemy of your soul, he cannot curse you. He can't come against you like that. But oh, come on, somebody. He can cause you to reach to the bottom shelf and grab a bag of cereal. <laughs> Little subtle things. And Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, some of you have gone the way of Balaam. Now don't shoot the messenger, we're just reading the Bible, y'all with me? So this is what was happening in Pergamum. There were, there were some who were being led astray as they were compromising with culture in order to relieve pressure from the culture and to be accepted relationally. And they were doing this because the ramifications of not doing so was social rejection and economic destruction. And if we are honest, this temptation's in all of us. If we are very, very honest, the two things that we hold dear to ourselves is the identity that we carry and the resources that we have. And Pergamum was charged by Jesus for abandoning the way so that they could receive social affirmation and economic security. And how many of you agree with me? It doesn't seem like much has changed. The temptation exists in all of us, if we're honest. The question then is this. Let's get to the practical part of all of this. A little Bible study. I wanted to lay the framework to help us understand how we're getting this information, what the Bible's teaching us, and now we're going to encourage us not to be people of compromise, but to be people, come on, somebody of stature and strength, because we believe in who Jesus is in our lives. So I want to spend the remainder of our time looking uh, today um, how do we keep ourselves from compromise? How do we make sure that we don't compromise? And then I want to look at the two promises that are associated with remaining steadfast and avoiding compromise. Three truths to understand about avoiding compromise. Number one, come on, every shot number one. Every shot number one. Here's the first one. Right hearts create steady feet. Right hearts create steady feet. Matthew chapter 13, one to nine. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell among, along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. 
But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. Everybody shout good ground. Come on, someone shout good ground. It fell on good ground and produced fruit, some 160 and 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. See, the condition of our hearts is one of the greatest issues that we face as we move forward into the future that God has individually for us and as a church. See, the condition of our hearts affects unity, relationship, character, integrity. It affects our teams. It affects our, our marriages for those of us who are married. It affects our singleness. A good heart, a, a, a steady heart, a heart that is right, not perfect, but in right standing. There's a difference. Y'all with me this morning still? See, if our heart's unhealthy, our feet are unsteady. So in Matthew 13, we're, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on these, but we're given purview to four different hearts that we see here. The first heart is this, and we'll go really fast. It's the unprotected heart. It's the heart that's unprotected. It's the heart that's left open to all the things that the enemy can do. I mean, here's my question for us this morning. Have you protected your heart? Proverbs tells us to protect our heart. Have you put a security system around your, par- your heart? Have you put some people around you that when something tries to creep in, they're like, wee, 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 wee. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the thing that I see, unfortunately, is the reason that so many of us lose our way as we're doing this journey with Jesus is that we haven't protected our heart. Yeah. I think I said this a couple weeks ago. We're better at protecting our homes than we are our hearts. Uh. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We used this illustration a couple weeks ago. How many of you know if some stranger walked up to your house today, knocked on the door and was like, hey, let me in. (laughs) You'd be like, nope, Uh uh-uh, right? Be like, you're not coming in here. And I have devices to stop that from happening. But then people come and things come and situations come and ideologies come and they knock on the door of our heart and they say, hey, let me in. You're like, sure. Come on in. It's a little bit of a compromise. It's a little bit of an edge to the side. So the unprotected heart, the shallow heart, I mean, that speaks for itself. The shallow heart is the heart that has not allowed the word of God to do the deep and surgical work necessary for strength, vitality, health, and character. It's got to go, it's got to go deep. We've got we to allow the word of, of God. The other day I, I was in my office and uh, I have some, I have a shade that just got put on my office. There's lots of crying in my office. And so um, and I got down on the floor when I was thinking about this. And this And I said, God, and fuse it. The thing is, is that many of us want to try to tell people what God thinks about their situation, but won't allow God to tell us about ours. It's the shallow heart. Was anybody with me in church today? Everybody shout Pergamum. Everybody shout Pergamum. The longing heart is the other heart that we see. The longing heart, this is the heart that becomes distracted, distracted as it longs for the world more than it longs for the voice and presence of God. 
Here's, here's the question I want to ask you. What in the world has the ability to purchase and persuade your heart? Got to think about these things. I really do hope that we leave today encouraged but caused to look at our lives and go, what, what is going on in me? And then there's the right heart. The right heart is the heart that receives his word in both hearing and understanding and allows it to take root, to go deep. And it's a long journey till we find ourselves crossing the finish line of faith with Jesus. Well done, good and faith-filled servant. Faithful servant. Come on, somebody. Is anybody thankful for Jesus today? So the first thing we need to understand is that right hearts create steady feet. Number two, every shot number two. Core truths create steady minds. Core truths create steady minds. I love Colossians chapter 2, 1 to 10. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the entirety of the Bible. So if there's ever a scavenger hunt that says, what is Jason's favorite scripture? This is it right here. For I want you to, this is Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthian, or to the Colossians, and he says this. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. For those in Laodicea, we're going to talk about Laodicea. So this is cool. When you start to like look at scripture, everything starts to connect together again. You say, wait a second, that guy's over here. That one's over here. This city's over here. Laodicea had some stuff going on. So he says, for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me in person, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. Christ in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm saying this so that none will be deceived, that you will not be deceived with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in the body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. Is anybody being ministered to by the Bible today? He says, so then, just as you've received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. When I'm established in Jesus, my life should be overflowing with gratitude. When I'm established in Jesus, my feet are going to be steady and my mind is going to be locked in. And there's a disposition that arises in me. All of a sudden, I got some joy that's overflowing. I got some confidence no matter what's going around me. Why? Because I am filled with the goodness of God. And then he says this in verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled with him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Come on, church, if you are thankful for Jesus, come on, let's just give out a shout of praise. (laughs) Write this down. Compromise happens when the strength of the outside argument is more powerful than the strength of the internal conviction. So it's not just conviction in relation to sin, it's conviction that I I have something to hold to, something that's anchoring me so that we do not drift. It's an inner resolve, right? And we've got to be the type of people that are so locked into Jesus that the strength of our internal conviction is stronger than the outside winds. 
Because if it's not, we'll compromise. Relieve a little pressure, get a little acceptance. This is a big deal for us right now. And this is what the church was doing. Somebody said, hey, listen, you just need to worship the emperor. And they're like, well, I kind of can't. And they said, well, it's, it's all right. We're gonna talk about this in a minute. It, it, it's all right. Just, just put a little incense on there. It doesn't matter what's going on inside you. Just put, put a little incense on it and walk away. You can still believe fundamentally in Jesus, but I want your actions to align with the emperor. That's compromise. This was the core concept behind the idea of Gnosticism. And this is what the Gnostic belief was, is that I could separate my spiritual and my physical. And this is what, this is what happens. I can do anything I want with my physical. Right? I can do anything I want. Doesn't matter, God's got grace for me because my spiritual side of me is intact. Where have we heard this before? He's like, you can do whatever you want. Put some incense on it. It don't matter. Sleep with who you want to. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter because it's just your body. It's going to be burned up in the end. God doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. Actually, no. He cares about all. Come on, somebody. He cares about all of you. And here's what I've come to learn is that our belief system informs our behavioral system. And so that's why Jesus lays claims to the things that we believe. Now, this is not something that is just for like, oh, wow, you know, the, 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 well, they're not going to compromise. But I can do what I want. The well's a building located in Sandy. Remember we talked about this last week if you were here. Our identity is connected to who Jesus is in our lives. So this means that all of us need to be challenged individually right now as to look at ourselves and go, where might I be compromising? Yeah. Yeah. Every single day, it's getting quiet in church now. <laughs> See, if you follow Jesus, he's laid claim to your life. All of your life. There's no separating that out. Every decision that you make has both physical and spiritual ramifications. Come on, I said every decision we make has both spiritual and physical ramifications. Yeah. Number three, everybody shot number three? three. There's the last one. Invite the team up. I love this one. Pressured saints receive from a providing Savior. Pressured saints receive from a providing Savior. Revelation 2.17, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Come on, we shall conquer. conquer. Come on, we shall conquer. And we shall conquer. We are more than conquerors, the Bible tells us. Overcomers. So you've gone to the one who conquers. I love that I can go play a game now that I've already won. I've conquered. The minute he got out of the grave, we won. <laughs> I've conquered. And not only have I conquered, but I'm more, more than a conqueror, a super infinity conqueror. <laughs> it keeps going and going. Oh, I've, I've conquered to the one who conquers. And then he says this. I want you to watch what happens now. This is so beautiful. That's why I love the Bible. That's what he says. Listen, if you don't compromise, if you stay conquerors, no matter what comes your way, I'm going to give you two things. 
He says, I'm going to give you hidden manna, and I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name on it. The two core needs of ourself is identity. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's identity and provision. Yes. Yeah. Would you all agree with me? Yes. It's identity and provision. Watch this. Manna. Jesus said that he will provide hidden manna. Manna was what was given supernaturally in the wilderness to the children of Israel in order to take care of them. He says, if you don't compromise in order to try to lock yourself into economic goodness, I'll provide for you. He says, it doesn't matter what's happening in the economy. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what's happening in politics. It doesn't matter what's happening with recessions. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. If you will lock into me, if you will allow me to be your source, I will provide for you. I will give you hidden manna. Don't hold back. Don't back down. Keep on doing what you're doing. I will provide for you. And the compromises, I'll take care of it myself, God, I got this. He says, no, I'll give you hidden manna. You don't even understand. I think when the world is falling apart, the church should be at its strongest. I'm a four of you, let's try this again. I believe that when the world is falling apart, the church should be at its strongest. We should be resourced. We should be able to help people. We should be able to do what we've been called to do because myself doesn't come from the world, it comes from God. So he says, I'll give you hidden manna. And then he says, I'll give you a white stone. And you're like, did we draft into Lord of the Rings? What's going on with the stone? According to antiquities and tradition, I quote, the white stone, it was a first century practice. Listen to this church. It was a first century practice that after a serious illness, after a serious illness, a patient who recovered would take a new, tra- a new name, to signify his or her complete recovery. And they would be given a white stone to say, you are a new person. What's Jesus, what's Jesus affirming? He's saying, I will provide for you and I will be your identity and you will be secure. No matter what is going on, Pergamum, listen to me. Church, listen to me. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter that we're getting back into the season where where the the pundits and the news sources and all these things are gonna go off. We don't need to worry about any of that. We need to just stay in this place realizing God has got me. He's got me resource and my identity is in him. I don't need to waver. I don't need to look to the left or to right. I can keep on moving forward. My family's gonna be okay. My church is gonna be okay. My city's gonna be okay. My business is gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. My mind's gonna be okay. My heart's gonna be okay. My soul's gonna be okay. My life is gonna be okay. Why? Because he's Jesus. Everybody stand to your feet. Hidden manna and a white stone. I know it seems weird when we look at it, but if we'll just do a little bit of work, this is why I love the Bible church. If we do a little work, oh, if we just do a little bit of work, if we just dig in, we'll see what Jesus has for us, what he wants to say to us. 
and how he is for you. Come on, somebody, and he is not against you. Come on, can we worship Jesus in this moment? Can we just give a shout of praise? Come on, somebody. Be thankful for Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed in this moment. Father, I pray for every single one of us right now who are honestly struggling with the issue of compromise. And we're struggling because we're, we're, we're trying to secure an identity. And so we think if we do this and we do this and we do this, then I'll be affirmed and I'll be loved and I'll be accepted. So God, right now, I pray that you would affirm every single one of us struggling with a secure identity. May our identity be found in you. And God, for those of us who are worried because of the wind right now, because of what's seemingly in the air. God, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would allow us to be people who are secure in the fact that you will give us hidden manna in Jesus' name, that you will secure us, that we do not need to worry if we just keep on doing what you've called us to do in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around in this moment, maybe today you might be thinking to yourself, man, I need Jesus in my life. If that's where I get an identity and if that's where I'm secured, if that's where I'm provided for, man, I need Jesus in my life. If you haven't made the decision to follow him today, I wanna give you the opportunity to do so. We're gonna pray a prayer all together today so that we don't leave anybody out. And if you'd be saying, man, Jason, that's me. I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to follow him. I need to give him my life. I need to give him everything I am. Make this your prayer today. This is the most important prayer that you will ever pray in your life. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, come on as loud as you can, would you repeat this after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm gonna follow you. I'm done doing it my way. And today, I am deciding to follow your way. So lead me. I'm giving up on everything. And I'm fully